So as we've been resting our minds in natural awareness these past number of days, we've really been realizing that we're not our thoughts, our feelings, our perceptions. They're really just neuronal gossip, as the saying is. Chains of neurons chattering to each other. That's our sum total. And there's a lovely, um, very moving story that I read recently um, about a man with a brain tumor. Um, And it's in a book called The Silent Land. And this man um, had a brain tumor that affected his, his functioning in the way that he was able to look in the mirror and believe that he didn't have a skull and he could just see his brain. And what was amazing was he saw the actual structure of his brain and he could describe it, how it actually was, and that he saw this spider-like thing in his brain that actually turned out to be the exact location and shape of the tumor. But the other thing was that as he looked into his brain, he believed that he saw the functioning of it. And this is um, what he said. And where do thoughts and feelings come from? Not me, he thought, because he saw that every fluctuation in the flow of experience, every intention and action was anticipated by distinct tremors of activity across the brain's surface. It was not a case of thinking or doing something and watching the brain follow step or dance in synchrony. His brain was ahead of him. Ideas were bubbling up in the neural cauldron a good half second before they appeared in consciousness. Even thoughts about thinking thoughts and thoughts about thoughts about thinking thoughts. So who was stirring the mental broth? And if he were a mere spectator, what exactly was his vantage point? That's it, he thought. That's what I amount to. This is my sum's total. There is no one stirring the broth. The functions of the brain have a life and logic of their own. Thoughts, feelings, and intentions produce me, not the other way around. He came to the conclusion that he was neither in there nor out here. Both perspectives were false. He wasn't anywhere. That's pretty amazing. So it's a mystery, this unfindability. Are we out there or in here? Adyashanti says, I'm not speaking to who you think you are. I'm speaking to you, the awareness behind the mask called me. Awakening doesn't mean you awaken. It means only there's awakening. All becoming ceases. Becoming is in time. Awakening is outside of time. So I'd like to explore this becoming and identity because as the Buddha taught, the greatest cause of suffering is attachment to a self-view. And the greatest cause of happiness is freedom from the conceit I am. He said, 
Seclusion is happiness for one who has seen and understood the Dharma. Friendliness to all beings is happiness to one who loves nonviolence. Dispassion towards the world is happiness to one who has let go of all sense desires. But freedom from the conceit, I am, this is the greatest happiness of them all. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Or as Arjun Jumnian says, happy, happy, empty, empty. <laughs> Philip mentioned the word neuroda the other night, or guided, I forget, sorry. It's this underlying peace, always here, always now. The word rhoda I've heard translated as walls. So neuroda, a mind without walls, not constricted by thoughts or stories or bound up to a sense of self or a sense of time. So neuroda is not bound, not having a fulcrum around the sense of self. It's freedom from needing to be anything. What a relief to not have to become anything. The problem is we want enlightenment. We want to become the one who's enlightened without eradicating attachment. <laughs> so we want to become that. That's just, that's just how it is. But this isn't this investigation of anatta or selflessness isn't about eradicating the ego or declaring war on the ego but more allowing the self to dissolve spontaneously, simply by relaxing, not giving anything up, not going anywhere, but really what we've been exploring, releasing, relaxing back, letting go into awareness, releasing identifications. And when we start to do that, What we're not falls away, and what's real becomes apparent. So we can live in and from that purity of mind, that fundamental nature that we've been exploring. All the beautiful qualities are available to us. Love, compassion, wisdom, clarity, strength, many different ways that awareness can manifest when it's not obscured by identification with self. One of the ways of exploring this to is explore perception, because it's our mind's nature to make representation. It's just what minds do, they make meaning. The neurons all work together to make models, to make sense out of the environment so we can function and all the images keep changing. It's normal. We're constructing all the time. The problem is we base the constructions on our history, on our belief. We create ladders of assumption. 
And we see that ourselves and the world through the filters of all these assumptions that get pieced together in our minds. And we lose connection with the fundamental nature because we've forgotten that we, we're not aware that we've created all this stuff. So perception is very simple. It arises out of contact with an object. There's a recognition based on our past experience. And the bare experience of perception is very simple, round, silver, black, very simple perceptions. But often what happens, of course, is that there are concepts formed from that. Um, Scarf. I had a scarf like this. Maybe I'd like one like this. And so forth. We, We create something and we obscure the actual real nature of it. So there's the direct experience, the bare experience, as we've been talking about, from all the sense doors of feeling and hearing, tasting, touching, and so forth. And then the concepts that we add on to that, and the papancha, the proliferation that comes from that. And often it's a a cultural conditioned thing, depending on where we grow up, is how we see certain circumstances. The stories that we build depend on our particular culture. A very simple example. Um, I was at a workshop, um, an experiential one, and we were divided into, into groups. People on one side of the room were people who had a lot of traffic violations. People on the other side of the room had none, and so on in between. And so they asked those of us at this side of the room, what color of car do you think the people at the far end of the room had? Can you guess? Red. <laughs> exactly. And then they asked the other side of the room with all the violations, what do you think of the people who are at that side of the room? Wimps. <laughs> and so we build these constructions and we see people through these glasses. The Buddha had this, um, these, these words, yata bhuta, seeing things as they actually are according to reality. And it's helpful to know what perspective we're functioning from, whether we're functioning from the world of concepts, through those kinds of glasses, or from a pure immediacy. So I could be giving this talk just from the immediacy of the moment, or I could be giving this talk as Dr. Ross, who knows certain things. It's helpful to know what perspective I'm functioning from. There doesn't need to be any conflict. We don't need to reject the conceptual world, more just to include it so that we can actively engage in the world and yet not be fooled by the concepts. So we use mindfulness to tune in to what's our actual experience right now, free of concepts. We can relax into the present moment. Philip was describing last night and again in the question period this morning the unpleasant situation with pain with his knee and the richness of that direct experience. 
free from stories about this will last forever, I'll never be able to walk and hike again, and all the stories that we can add to it. It's not constricted and limited by beliefs. Ajahn Chah said, You should know both the universal and the personal, the realm of forms and the freedom not to cling to them. The forms of the world have their place, but in another way, there's nothing there. To be free, we need to respect both of these truths. So it isn't about getting rid of anything. So this evening, I wanted to particularly focus on the belief system around a sense of self, self self-view the ego, personality, self-perception. And we create a sense of self whenever we identify with a particular aspect of experience. The Buddha gave a beautiful teaching to his son, Rahula. And it's the same teaching, actually, that Guy was referring to the other night, when Rahula was quite small. And Rahula had wanted to follow his father uh, on arms rounds, and he was close behind him. And the Buddha turns round and he says, Rahula, any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is, with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Only material form, blessed one, only material form, sublime one. You notice he doesn't say, only material form, dad. (laughs) Poor Rahula. (laughs) You can tell that was a mother being born. And then the Buddha goes on to say, material form, Rahula, and feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So poor Rahula considers thus, who would go into the town for alms today when personally admonished by the Blessed One? And he goes back and he sits down under a tree and crosses his legs and begins to meditate. And Sariputra sees him and has compassion for him and says, Rahula, develop mindfulness of breathing. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. So Rahula practices all day. And then at the end of the day, he goes back to his father and he says, how is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it's of great fruit and benefit? And so then the Buddha gives him this beautiful teaching. And he teaches him to practice contemplating all of the four elements and the space element, earth, fire, air, water, and space, in this way. He tells him to contemplate internally and externally the earth element. Both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth element. 
and they should be seen as they actually are with proper wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And when one sees it as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the earth element and makes the mind dispassionate. And he goes on to say that for all of the elements. And then he says at the end, if you develop like meditation like this, then agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. In other words, you'll be free. So we create a sense of self whenever we identify with a particular aspect of experience and make it mine or me. I'm bored. My sleepiness, my restlessness are unpleasant feelings. That's the first papancha on contact. The mark of thingness is ownership. This is mine. And it's fed by society. It's just how it is. But the Buddha said, but, sorry, Buddha Dasa said, mistaken interpretation of moments of sense consciousness as being I or mine are the root cause of suffering in the world. And the cure is a handful of dharma. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. So the mine is when we have to have it so we can become, we can become complete, better than. And we compare ourselves, our ideas of what we should be like and who we are and um, what we want to become. And it can be really painful. I have... um, A lot of my friends, like me, are getting older, and I have a very dear friend who's developing cognitive decline and is now in assisted living. And it's so moving to me, because of her years of practice, how she's able to allow that um, the capacities that she had when she was younger are, are gone. And at first, it's scary, and there's a feeling of being adrift. And then we realize that those capacities were never who she was. And the identification of being the smart one, being the teacher, being this person or that person, the degree to which you're attached to it is the degree to which we'll suffer. And what's so moving for me is that she's got a lot of equanimity and humor. She's been able to let go of being the person that had all those capacities. As I was getting up here tonight and realizing um, I'm not the Adrian who could sit cross-legged and I'm now needing all this contraption so I can sit in a chair and see. <laughs> and so I, it's easy to become the one who needs all that rather than just see this are just changing capacities. And then it's not stressful. We also get caught in becoming the one who is better or worse than, in inferiority and superiority conceits. 
Um, and it's so painful. We need to be a self that's loved, that's approved of. And if we ha- are a certain way in the world, maybe we won't be. That need to be seen. We're afraid to allow certain aspects of ourselves to be seen because they believe, we believe that they're who we are and if they, we're, they're seen, we won't be lovable. But they're just mind states and we let the mind states define us. If we can liberate our minds from the ideas of better than or worse than or the same as, we can liberate ourselves from all views of self and other. And there's then peace then from this incessant trying to get it right, become a certain one. Lily Tomlin says, I always wanted to be somebody. I guess I should have been more specific. (laughs) Because we have that vague sense of wanting to be somebody. It doesn't matter really what it is as long as it's something that we'll be approved of. And it takes us further away from actually connecting with what's right here. And we also have this collective sense of self. Um, David Loy calls it we-go instead of ego. And I really like that term. And then there's a collective um, separation between us and the rest of the biosphere. We become these beings that are doing to the planet rather than realizing that we are, we are it. We're all part of the planet. We're not separate from the world. We're interdependent. And you can feel in this room the connections, the life energy between us all. We're not so separate. Our bodies are separate in a certain way and our personalities are. But there's a way that we're not. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, um, talks about the five aggregates as empty of a separate sense of self, but full of everything in the cosmos. And I like that feeling of just having that sense of separate, and yet that's the thus come and thus gone that we were exploring yesterday. In the teachings, many, many places in the suttas, the Buddha discusses this um, teaching that he gave to Rahula of not me, not mine, not myself. And many of the monastics all over the world chant every day, form is not self, feeling is not self, Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. And then they go on. Attachment to each of those is dukkha. And if you do that, at different times, I've done that for a whole retreat, at different times during the day when I'm caught, there'll be this attachment to... Formations is dukkha. Perception is not self. Oh. Feeling is not self. Oh. 
and there's that reminder it's possible to release it. We do need a sense of self, a personal identity to function in the world. It provides coherence, continuity. We organize ourselves around it to function in the world. When we lose it for some reason through shock or trauma, it's very, um, we get disorganized and it's really difficult to function. And um, we, it's, that's not useful. We're not talking about that. And also we need continuity through time and space. There's a sense of Adrianness that continues throughout my life. It's fluid and it's changing all the time, but there's this continuity. And there's an importance in that. When I was a physician, um, there was an elderly couple in my practice and the um, nurse practitioner called me up because the couple were having difficulty Um, The husband believed sincerely, they were in their 80s, that his wife was having an affair. And what had happened was he he was no longer able to recognize himself. So he would go into rooms in the house and see this strange man in the mirror. And so he was terrified. He thought his wife was having an affair. And so it was, it was, sort of there was this sadness of that, of losing that ability and how important that is to have continuity. And so we're not trying to dissolve that. This is where it's um, this not only that. It's including all of it. The problem is we reify the sense of self and we believe it's the only truth the delusion of me as the center of everything. It's all about me. A lot of our sitting practice in the beginning, we sit down and we get the story of me. And um, this is Wei Wu Wai, Wei Wai, Wei Wu Wai, sorry. (laughs) Again, um, and I still love this quote, why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% 99.9% of everything you think, everything you do, is for yourself. And there isn't one. <laughs> so, I heard it before and it still makes me laugh because I still do it. So it's a reminder. And Ajahn Sumedho says, whatever assumptions you have about yourself, no matter how reasonable they might be, there's still a creation in the present. By believing in them, thinking and holding to them, you're creating continually this personality. Awakeness is not a creation. It's an imminent act of attention in the present moment. So we can think of our identities as training wheels. The quote I gave you yesterday about Anam Tupton saying the analogy of clothing, identity that we can take on and off. But the problem is we get afraid to take it off. And so it becomes impossible to know what's actually here and also to see others as they actually are free from the projections that we put on them. 
And that solidifies us and it solidifies other people. And we start, we believe we're separate. And the separateness from all that we are actually leads to isolation. And in a way, what I've come to see is this yearning for specialness to be seen is actually really wanting to return to wholeness. It's not a bad thing. It's wanting to return to wholeness. We know we're missing something. And our efforts to be enough, to be brilliant, to shine, are really attempts to return home to what's brilliant and shining just as it is, without us having to become anything. That's, that's what, it's a homing device. We're just pointing it in the wrong direction. And so our practice is about returning home. And some of you have said that. It feels like I'm coming home. This is not somewhere strange. It's home. So when we do that, we don't need to judge it. When we see ourselves wanting to be special, wanting to be seen, not to judge it, but just be with ourselves, see what happens, pay attention. Have compassion for it. So as we practice, it's easy to see how the whole process gets set in motion. Something happens, there's contact, there's a feeling tone. I like it. That's the first papancha. I like it. I want more. I want less. I don't. Or I like. This response to wanting and pushing away is already a becoming. And as soon as we're aware of it, there's selfing. And a lot of our spiritual practice is a process of unselfing, really, just releasing. And we can notice this selfing arise and pass over and over in a day. And we can make it actually an object of our attention. Here's a self coming. There's another one. There's another one. And have humor about it. Look what I just became. Now look what I became. Whoa, look at that one. I like that one. Give me that one again. So it's to have a softness and gentleness about it. That way we can begin to loosen the sense of identity around it. The mind is going to do the selfing. It's just that we don't have to grab on and believe it. Um, some years ago, the retreat center I, I teach at in Canada, we have to take all our own cushions and zafus there. And one year, at the end of the retreat, um, my za- one of my zafus was gone. And at the time, I was kind of sad about it, but I let it go. A year later, this man walked into the next retreat carrying that zafu, and he sat down on it. And I saw this immediate arising in my mind, the first word was, mine, (laughs) my Zafu. And this memory, if that was the Zafu I had on my first three-month retreat, and this whole (laughs) papancha, and there I am, I'm teaching. And then, then I noticed he became the one who took my Zafu. (laughs) And and I would see him in the corridor, And as soon as I saw him, he became the one who took my zafu. But it was so funny just seeing those arise. 
And I could feel myself contract around it. You can just feel that contraction. Holding in the body means we're holding in the mind. And if we're holding in the mind, usually we're holding on to a sense of self. And as we start to pay attention, we can feel all those subtle contractions and holdings. There's like a tingling and a mental image. I could feel that mine. And it just felt like a two-year-old. You know, the sort of first thing a two-year-old says, mine. It just felt like that energy. And it's, it's powerful. And it's not about trying to get rid of that sense of self, but it's more what's actual. It's just a cushion. And, um, and just having that understanding. It's what's actual. So the only thing that goes away is really um, the capacity for the Adrianness to obscure reality. The capacity for my identification and identities to obscure reality. So we're not limiting ourselves to language concepts and beliefs. There's more openness and fluidity. So awareness can include rather than be defined and delineated by our experience. So there is a perception of I'm a this or I'm a that, and then the knowing of it. The more we develop awareness of the process, there's the perception, there's the knowing, here's the identification. The less we feed the illusion, and we start to see, oh, judging, oh, I became the judging one. Now I became the one who's getting it right. That feels very good. Now I became the one who's getting it wrong. That's gross. And so we see what's happening. Oh, here's the one who believes what the judge is saying. That's one that's often difficult to miss. We might, sorry, easy to miss. We often see the identif- we often see the judging mind, or we see what it is, but we don't see the mind state that follows it, that believes the judgment. And so then the judge has more power. And so it's seeing all the pieces. It's really easy to get lost in taking everything personally. And it helps to know what perspective am I operating from. Am I operating from a self? Or am I operating from awareness, from Budo, from being awake? Trust the awareness rather than the perception. We can see then that we've created a self and it doesn't have to cause harm. So the awareness is there before you become something. So we can move from identification to just being. Not being aware of, not, sorry, I lost it for a minute. We've been referring to this as right mindfulness, sama sati, awakened awareness. This knowing that the moments can, that we can Um, have moments of a separate sense of self 
wait. <laughs> All the words are coming out in the wrong order. <laughs> so we can have moments that are empty of a separate sense of self happen many times a day. We've had that. We just don't notice them because we get caught up in them. We get caught up and distracted in stories. So we miss that, the internal monologue of me. We miss those moments. And the moment, any time that we're not lost in the story of me, even for a moment, there's a sense of completion and of freedom and of wholesome, of wholeness. The mind quiets. And there's a gap between thoughts. And then I just saw this arising. And if you weren't talking so fast, there'd be a gap between thoughts. <laughs> and then you'd be able to keep track of yourself. <laughs> So we, we can be present for these moments that are free from the stories of me, and it's very nourishing. If we can let be at the endings of things and just put our attention on what remains, what's here. And there's a sense of aliveness, of possibility, of potential. And we start to see all the sounds, the thoughts, the colors, all the comings and goings are arising and dissolving in awareness. And that the awareness isn't impacted or disrupted by them. The patterns arise and cease without causing harm. The image that you have of the sky, Sharon Salzberg in one of her books talks about the birds crossing the sky all the different birds of the thoughts and feelings. Well, the sky doesn't say to the birds, give me a break for a while. It doesn't matter what the birds are doing. This possibility of resting in awareness is always there. And we can see that pattern of on to the next thing that some of you have mentioned that pattern that we have so many of us, what's next, what's next? We can just see it dissolve into awareness. We don't have to reach out and move forward. We don't have to become the one who needs to know what's next. We can just let it come and go. So it's an awareness that includes everything. It's a totality. It's not fixating on or identifying with any aspect of experience. Everything is included, everything. But it's not, we're not particularizing to anything or identifying with anything. We're not trying to become someone who's aware, but to be awareness itself in the present moment. Arjun Samedo says, we're not, he says, be the wisdom itself rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become wise. Be the wisdom itself rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become 
wise. So it's learning to trust in being the wisdom rather than thinking, I have to become the wise one. The other thing that's been so helpful and important for me in my practice is to watch for when I identify with awareness. My awareness. This is the real me. Now I've found it. There is no I in awareness. But I want there to be. I want there to be someone who's special. You can see that arising. But it's not my purity. It's a natural purity that can't be lost, that's unconditioned. Which is fortunate. It's not up to me. (laughs) It's timeless. It's not in time and space. Pali word is akaliko, timeless. What we tend to do is, what I tend to do, is create a subtle sense of witness, of observer, that's separate from experience. Even though we understand the transient nature of all the thoughts, we can still have a strong feeling that we're the one that knows. And that's what that's, that's so amazing about that story about the man in, who's looking at his brain. He could see that he wasn't running the show. And we want the one who knows to be I. We don't want the one who doesn't know to be I. But it's not. The knower of insights is arising and passing. That too. It's mysterious. And it's also quite amazing and wonderful. The knower of insights is coming and going. It's simply the mind knowing its own nature. Dharma knowing its own nature. As soon as we make an object of it, then it's dualistic. There's a subject here looking at an object there. So if we can relinquish the looking for, and just kind of, we call it resting in the knowing, or resting in what's being known. There's a f- sort of, it's difficult to find the right words, but there's an immediacy to it, a freshness to it, um, beingness, presence. I can't, it's hard to exactly find words for it. But it's as though that veil between um, object and subject just dissolves. Upasika Ki puts it beautifully. She says, if things are left to their nature, pure and simple, there's no us and no them. The awareness that eliminates the sense of self depends on powers of observation, mindfulness and discernment. Look to know and don't latch on to what you know. Sabe, dhamma, anatta. All phenomena are not self. Tells us not to latch on to any of the phenomena of nature. Both fabricated and unfabricated are not self. Just dhamma. Everything that remains as it was. It hasn't been annihilated. 
the only thing annihilated are the defilements along with stress and suffering. There's an extinction of all attachment to me and mine. But all that's annihilated is clinging and attachment. The sense of self is selfless. It's just another thought. If you don't find yourself in anything, that's the end of suffering. And we've all had experiences of that at different times, perhaps in nature, on retreat, in connection with someone. It's the simplicity of letting be, not holding on tight, not taking things personally. Gil Fronstahl um, once um, said, the sense of self is mind drag, kind of holds you back. It pulls us out of the space of open awareness. So can we just simply be seeing clearly and not have ourselves be in everything? Don't have to make a self of anything. It's not necessary. So I could ring the bell and make it could make a horrible noise. Just that, rather than I rang the bell and made a horrible noise. It's just not finding a self in anything. One of the difficulties that we have is we think when Apasaka Ki was saying um, the only things that are annihilated are the defilement, stress, and suffering, we think that I am is going to be annihilated. And it's scary. And many of us have had that scary feeling of groundlessness, of everything being shifted and falling and sort of dissolving apart underneath us when we have the sense of our usual identities falling away. Nobody here. Um, If I'm not doing the meditation, what's left? We think there has to be somebody to identify. Give me something to hold on to. And we can see that sometimes in our meditation, how quickly when things get quiet, we want to fill it in. Bring something in. (laughs) Give me something to identify with. To get stability again. This fear of not existing is a biological one. But when stuff drops away, we we actually are closer to understanding our fundamental nature. It's as though the intelligence the cognizant nature of awareness, the knowing nature of awareness, takes over. It's not an I doing it anymore. I is not obscuring. One of my teachers once said, Buddha nature is not a big deal. It's actually getting more normal. And it's true. But the sense of survival is really strong. It's tied to the physical body, to the reptilian brain, and that sense of things dissolving, the ego goes, no, give me something to identify with. (coughs) And so it's helpful to have compassion for that and know it for what it is. This is just 
survival fear. Fear is like this. It's okay for fear to be here. We can, we can bring compassionate practice in. Many of the devotional practices are very helpful because we can rest in awareness while the fear of letting go is there. We think, if I'm not seen, if I'm not special, I won't exist. And that's often what's underneath that. And if we can experience ourselves as free from this identification with the body, with the mind, with everything, then we're less afraid of death. We're less afraid of old age and sickness. We're less holding on to things having to be a certain way. The more we can abide from our fundamental nature, the more insecurity becomes selflessness. It just moves into that. And that selflessness leads to generosity, which leads to more openness. And there's less of a sense of an inner center that needs to be defended and that needs to be fed and has to get more for itself. There isn't a self to center around. And we have this sense of openness, expansion, and ease. Opasika Ki again says, knowing and not knowing trade places. So they seem to be different. But if you get stuck on this duality, you're stuck on yourself. If you're really going to know, you have to know both sides, the side that knows and the side that doesn't know, to see that they're both inconstant, they're both um, unsubstantial in the same way. And then there's freedom in that. Ajahn Mun says, this vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. All that remains is awareness, simple and utterly pure. So we can understand and directly experience this unsubstantial nature of self and see our interdependence with all things. And we can hold the ways of being being a self in a way that's beautiful, rather than a way that's suffering. And we can relax the heart into this sense of ease and peace. If we can bring in our practice awareness into every place where the ego feeling is arising, then it starts to stop, it doesn't obstruct the clarity so much. So we can just gently check out. And that's just that sense of of knowing where we're holding on in all the different ways in our awareness. It doesn't obstruct the spaciousness, the brightness. And no matter how dense or how thick a particular sense of self may be, and some of you have felt that, how we just feel completely stuck in this particular mind state. 
it is actually transparent. It may not feel that way in the moment, but it is. And so the the deep freedom that comes from this inner shift of understanding, from this as this unshakable deliverance of the mind. And that's the, um, the quote, the unshakable deliverance of the mind. But to me, it's also of the heart. The awareness being the very heart of our nature. The body, the mind, and the heart completely free. So the highest joy is to be able to see and recognize and reconnect with this and know it for our home, for our true home. So awareness and wisdom and compassion and love can be in the driver's seat rather than the ego. And there's a spaciousness, a stillness, a humor, a calm that comes from that. And we can relax and respond with love and compassion and insight. So may you all enjoy yourselves and be free in yourselves. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.